I did, uh, I was asked to, to share a little bit more uh, this morning, and so I, I do, I, you know, you can call me Reverend Rook or not, but I would love to open the scriptures for us. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 9, so you're welcome to, to find your way there as I, as I get started. Let me pray, and, um, and we'll continue. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're our Father. We celebrate that on Father's Day. Uh, we celebrate our earthly fathers, but ultimately, Lord, we rejoice that we have a heavenly Father who calls us sons and daughters. And so, Lord, would you, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the power of your living, active Word, help us to embrace that reality and live as though we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. So bless us now as we look into your Word. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for 31 of my 44 years, I was Jason Gibson. Many of you know this. Uh, some of you do not. But you know me now as, as Jason Rook. So there's, there's a story there. Let me, let me share a little bit about that. Uh, my name, I was born Jason Rook. That's who I was born to be. My parents divorced, however, when I was, I think before I was a year old. And not long thereafter, my mom remarried and married uh, my stepdad, Dale Gibson. Some of you know, know him. He's, he lives here in Huron, um, a, a dentist in town for, for many years. I still call him dad. I'm going to have breakfast with him uh, tomorrow morning. But even though uh, my, I, I was adopted by uh, my dad, Gibson, I'm going I'm to use the terms dad Gibson and dad Rook just to be clear. That's the best way I think I can do it this morning. Even though I was adopted as a young uh, a young boy, and I grew up in the Gibson family, um, I had a relationship with my birth father, Dad Rook. Every summer for a couple of weeks, uh, I, would, uh, I would spend time with him and his, he was remarried as well, I would spend time with his wife uh, as well, and eventually they adopted a boy who became a brother of mine. So I, I would spend time with the Rook family. But uh, I, was, I was blessed by that, but I was always pained a little bit because um, I knew that somehow my, my birth father, Dad Rook, had relinquished his rights to me so that I could be adopted by, by um, Dad Gibson. And my understanding as a kid was that he did what was convenient and financially expedient. Um, so that's not an easy thing for a son to digest about his birth father. And of course, I, uh, as a kid, I, just, I was a, a little afraid to address it, to ask about it, to talk about it. Um, so I enjoyed my time with, my, with Dad Rook and his family, uh, but just always felt a little confused and conflicted about what it meant to be uh, a son in that family. And, and frankly, I grew up calling him by his first name. My dad was the one in my home, uh, Dad Gibson. He's, he was my dad. He was raising me day, day in and day out and, and loving me well. So I grew up calling my birth father by his first name, Daryl. I, I grew up wondering, am I really accepted by my birth father? I wrestled internally with questions like, why did he reject me? Uh, didn't he love me enough to fight for my name? And it caused me many years of something I've only identified relatively recently, and that is shame. Now, a dictionary definition of shame, uh, one definition is the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something disgraceful. That's a, t that's a strong word, isn't it? 
disgraceful, the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something disgraceful. One author makes a, a distinction between shame and guilt. Guilt says to us, uh, I, I did something wrong. Shame says to us, I am wrong. So shame is, is a deeper uh, sense of, uh, it, uh, to use this word, disgrace. So even after my mom and stepdad, the Gibsons, later divorced when I was in high school, uh, I began to reestablish my relationship with my birth father. Eventually started calling him dad. When I was in college, I started calling my birth father dad instead of by his name. But I carried this sense of shame that my thoughts of taking back my original name, which I had had these thoughts for many years, what if, I mean, I was born Jason Rook, I love the Gibsons, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be a part of that family, but who am I? These kinds of questions would come into my, my head. Did my birth father really want me to change my last name back? He, would, he never said anything like that. After all, he gave up the rights for me to keep my last name. Perhaps he doesn't really care that much about that. In a little bit, I'm going to share about how I did become Jason Rook uh, once again. But I'll tell you, in college, what joy, as a conflicted, who's my dad, I've got two people I call dad kid, what joy I had in college coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ and coming to know that I have a heavenly father. I have a dad I, who, who knows my name and calls me his son. And yet, like all of us, uh, I, I can be prone to live in either shame or, frankly, in pride, showing I don't believe that I'm an adopted child of God. My sin can cause me to question God's acceptance of me. So I might just ask you to, to reflect on that. What about you? How does shame name itself in your life? How might you revert to a heart attitude of shame? How might you still fear God's rejection of you and live ashamed? What will you experience if you don't do the job quite right? Or pride, which might be defined as an inflated sense of one's own worth or personal status, typically making one feel a sense of superiority over others and leading someone uh, to look condescendingly at others. Are we in danger of running past our shame and becoming prideful, presuming upon the kindness of God? Is there a little bit of I, I've arrived in us now that we've walked with Jesus for a while? On the road of life, we can really veer uh, to one ditch or another, the ditch of shame and a ditch of pride. So today, we want to explore the powerful reality that God, because God has adopted us into his family, we can live like sons and daughters of the king of kings. And shame and pride need rule us no more. So in 2 Samuel 9, we get rich insight into the experience of shame and its crippling effects. And we learn, too, about God and how kind he is, his heart to seek us out in the midst of that shame, accept us and invite us into his presence and to his table. So I want to I read this. Now, uh, for um, someone to preach a passage where he has to say the word Mephibosheth many times is, uh, is, no, is a step of faith, okay? Um, so if, I, if, I, if something gets twisted in there, please extend some grace. Uh, so 2 Samuel 9, starting in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. 
And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may, sh I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So a, a little context to bring us to this point. God has called David, we remember, in unexpected circumstances. He's called him to, to be king. Saul had been chosen, proved a disappointment, and ultimately disobeyed God. David, we know as a man after God's own heart, the youngest of eight sons and a simple shepherd, is anointed king. Once established as king, David experienced tremendous blessing from the Lord. The early years of his reign gave evidence that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, we read in 1 Samuel 16. 2 Samuel 7, we, we learn that God says to David through the prophet Nathan, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This great covenant points us to Jesus, who testifies to John in Revelation 22 that I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. David is in the sweet spot of his reign when we come to 2 Samuel 9. And it's, it typifies the, the reign of the Messiah, King Jesus, to come. So it's vital for us to recognize what's gone on for David to become uh, king and come to this point. After being anointed in secret, initially loved by King Saul, David's success, like defeating Goliath, uh, and his popularity uh, led to incredible jealousy on the part of Saul and attempts by Saul, right, to, to kill him. We read these accounts, accounts where Saul throws his spear to, to try to pin David to the wall and kill him. Saul's son Jonathan, meanwhile, becomes David's closest friend. 
With David on the run from a jealous Saul, Jonathan comes to him in warning and speaks these words. Jonathan says, Show me the steadfast love of the Lord and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. This is a covenant between David and Jonathan. It's a covenant remembered by David now after Saul and Jonathan have died that leads David to ask his question in 2 Samuel 9. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's what leads him to ask that question. Now, it's important for us to realize the expectation that anyone uh, from an old dynasty would have when the new dynasty comes into power. One commentator says, when a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was purge. Wipe them out. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, everybody practiced it. So enter David at this most important and his most unexpected question. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul, in the old dynasty, to whom I can show, not to whom I can kill, but to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So back in our text, 2 Samuel 9, 2-5, we read of uh, uh, the Ziba, a servant in the house of Saul, and the king asks who he is, and he, he asks his question, and Ziba says there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So he doesn't even say what his name is. Ziba, a servant from the house of Saul, is called to address this question, and he gave an answer. There is someone still left. But he wanted this, the king to know not his name initially, but that he was crippled in his feet. Maybe Ziba wondered about David's unusual question. Did Ziba fear that David might be summoning him to wipe out Saul's house, maybe even including Ziba? Could he really mean kindness even to a cripple? Uh, I had a fifth grade teacher. Uh, I went to uh, Madison Elementary. At that time, his name was Mr. Kingery. I don't know if anybody remembers him. Uh, he lived near Cavour, and he used to refer, he would joke about his own, uh, his own town. This is not a knock on Cavour, but he, would, he used to say, uh, of a place that sort of meant nothing. Uh, oh yeah, it's kind of like the south of Cavour. He would, he would joke about that, right? Uh, so we would laugh about that. Oh yeah, because he lived south of Cavour. Um, but that low debar might be such a place. David asks where Jonathan's son is, and he's told that he's in a place called low debar. One commentator says this can literally imply no thing. Low debar was likely an uncared about middle of nowhere, no thing town. So David, King David, seems to have brought him from Lodabar to Jerusalem. And it might be like the President of the United States summoning someone from south of Cavour to the White House. Okay? So then in 2 Samuel 9, 6, Mephibosheth comes to David, falls on his face, pays homage. David says his name, Mephibosheth, and he answers, Behold, I'm your servant. So here we're told his name. In 2 Samuel 4, we are made aware of this son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, and how he came to be crippled in his feet. The Philistines pursued Israel in battle and killed Jonathan, eventually Saul. And we read that Mephibosheth was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell 
and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. His name itself might make standing in the presence of a new king humbling. And uh, here's why. His name means one who scatters shame or shameful thing. So the one who scatters shame from nowhere arrives at the king's palace. And he knew what normally happened to the remnants of a defunct dynasty. He was likely trembling. This is it. I'm going to get wiped out. The, uh, the, new, the new king's in place. But Mephibosheth throws himself on his face and says to David, Behold, I am your servant. 2 Samuel 9, 7, we read David saying, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. David, the man after God's own heart, the one who loved the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel's God-appointed king, who has recently heard that his throne shall be established forever, David remembers his covenant with Jonathan and says to Mephibosheth, do not fear. <laughs> do not fear? Uh, what sweet, sweet relief that must have been to Mephibosheth to hear those words first. Do not fear. Uh, in Victor Hugo's book, Les Mis, um, let's be honest, in, in the movie Les Mis, I mean, maybe some of you guys have read the book, but perhaps you've seen the movie Les Mis, uh, we, we read of this, or we see this character and have the scene of a recently released criminal. His name's Jean Valjean. And he is poor, he's hungry, uh, but he's shown the kindness of a meal. He's given a room by a bishop, man of the church. But the criminal, Valjean, in the middle of the night, beats the bishop and steals his silver. And he's on the run again. The next day, he's caught. The police catch him. And they, the police bring Valjean back to the bishop to confront what he has done. And, uh, and they're, they're mocking him in front of the bishop. <laughs> this guy, Valjean, bishop, he, he says that you gave him the silver. And the bishop says, yes, of course I gave it to him. Valjean, did you forget to take the candlesticks? The bishop thanks the police for bringing Valjean back, and they let him go. Valjean is incredulous. Why have you done this, he asked the bishop. The bishop replies, don't forget. Don't ever forget. You no longer belong to evil. I'm bringing you back to God. You have been ransomed from fear and hatred. I give you back to God. Valjean never forgets, right? The grace he has shown changes his life, enables him to serve others and even to show kindness to his enemy. So Mephibosheth, coming back to our text, is like Valjean, a stunned recipient of grace. David goes on to explain he will show Mephibosheth kindness for Jonathan's sake. He goes beyond just a simple promise not to kill him and says, he, I mean, he lavishes kindness on him. He promises him land and position in David's house. He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Like a kid who never expected to be picked for a winning team or uh, a criminal expecting justice to be meted out but uh, receiving leniency, Mephibosheth is stunned. 
and he pays homage. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Expecting a lifetime of shame in a desolate place, Mephibosheth is being given more good things than he can imagine. David then calls Ziba back to arrange things, including Ziba and his family and servants, helping Mephibosheth with his new estate in Jerusalem. He repeats that Mephibosheth is to always eat at my table. We are told uh, that indeed Mephibosheth ate at David's table with this addition. He did so, how? Like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth's son Micah joined him in Jerusalem, and all in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Like a son. The account of David and Mephibosheth really is an amazing look at covenant kindness toward the lowest of the low. Notice the drumbeat of the word kindness in the passage. Verse 1, kindness. Verse 3, kindness. Verse 7, kindness. Each time that word that we see as kindness is the Hebrew hesed. And it means so much more than just being nice. It was rooted in loving relational commitment. The original hearers, Ziba and Mephibosheth, and the original readers, the people of Israel, wouldn't have missed the significance of hearing hesed. Has said, has said. David knew what he'd promised Jonathan, and it moved him to action, to seek out someone to bless. So, so what can we learn from this account about our God? In light of what he's done for us, how can we apply this today? It's a wonderful depiction, the story of David and Mephibosheth, of adoption. You don't find the word in the text, but it's a clear picture of David making Mephibosheth a part of his family. Though Mephibosheth was old enough at this point to have a son of his own, we read that he ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So let's bring this home. Like Mephibosheth, we were sought by a king because of his covenant love for us. And we were brought into God's family with all the benefits of being sons and daughters of the king. We sing uh, in, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the tune right now, but we sing this line, Jesus sought me, when a stranger, right? That's what God has done. We've been shown the same incredible kindness and grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. In Les Mis, we get to see the rest of the story about how the bishop's grace and kindness changed Valjean's life. Now, we don't necessarily get to see uh, what that did for Mephibosheth or how it changed him, but I think it's fair to say it radically altered his life for the better. And he was probably living, now that he was with his, uh, essentially his adopted king and father, living accepted and unashamed and humbly grateful with no place for pride. So let me unpack two key implications for us related to our own undeserved adoption into God's family due to his great covenant kindness. First is this, because God has adopted us into his family, we need not live a life of shame, but of honor and acceptance. Here's the rest of my last name story. In 2008, at the, age of two, uh, at the age of 33, I took the initiative to try and to get to know my birth father, Dad Rook. Um, I was a little scared because, again, there was this cloak of shame that I had. Do you really want me in your life? Uh, but we got together for lunch. I asked him if he'd be willing to do this, and can I just ask questions, try to get to know you better? He said, I can't think of anything I wouldn't be willing to share. That was encouraging. 
And I asked him questions. What was it like growing up on the farm in Iowa? Uh, tell me about Vietnam and what it was like to be a Marine. Um, will you share your thoughts on, on the divorce between you and mom? I've never really heard you talk about that. And he opened up wide. At the end of our conversation, my dad said, you know, I, I really have one major regret. I wish I'd had you keep your name. I wish you were still Jason Rook. Words fail to describe what I felt upon hearing that, what this son felt upon hearing that from my birth father, whom I'd only recently begun to call dad. I learned a little more uh, about why he allowed the rights to my last name to, uh, to be relinquished. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't apathy or convenience or money that led him to, uh, to, to let Dad Gibson adopt me. But he thought, listen, Jason's going to be in a house with three other Gibsons, and eventually four. Um, and I think that'll be hard for him if he's the only rook. And when I heard that, I mean, I just, it just opened my eyes. And it helped me to realize the reason that he allowed the rights to me to be relinquished was because he loved me. It's because he loved me. I st my emotion shifted from shame to acceptance. Though he now regretted it, he did something difficult to make my life easier. So I went to court in February of 2008, along with Erica, uh, for her second name change, right? <laughs> and uh, had my name legally changed back to Rook. My birth father began talking to me about the land that he and his siblings owned in Iowa, uh, the farm that they own and want to pass along to us, talking about his will. It, it was like David uh, giving land and position to Mephibosheth. I, I felt accepted and honored in my birth father's family. And I can also reflect on the grace that I've seen, I've seen as an adopted son of Dad Gibson here, here in town. He, he was wonderful to me and, and still is. I am who I am in so many ways because of him. He cared for me, provided for me, loved me. Legally adopted and raised by him, I live like one of his sons. Or think what God has done in our family currently. You saw the three boys. We waited six years to adopt our, our firstborn, Austin. Then we waited another five years, and God led us to little then two-and-a-half-year-old Ray and nine-month-old Milo. Both of those boys were figuratively crippled by neglect by their birth parents. They were in the foster system, removed from their home and placed into foster care. And God orchestrated for us to meet them on a Friday, bring them home on the Tuesday, the next Tuesday, and five months later, legally adopt them and make them officially part of our family. So one of the things we're learning as we parent Ray and Milo, in particular, is the impact of neglect that they experienced in their early lives. They have uncertain, uncertainty and instability in their early life. They're slow to process things that they hear from mom and dad. And sadly, it's because shame is a part of their story. So we're praying, and you can pray with us, to help them find security, hope, and joy in their family. Uh, and they, they, they call us daddy, mommy. They love us. They, we have lots of great moments, but there's a lot of challenges too. Mephibosheth's very name meant shame. His disability was a constant, visible, physical reminder that shame uh, was really his existence. He wasn't able to walk. His grandfather was rejected as a king. 
His father was killed in his youth. He lives in the middle of nowhere with no hope of a future. And then comes King David, remembering his covenant love toward Jonathan. So what causes you to dwell on your formal crippled state spiritually? Are there other people like Ziba in your life? Uh, he's crippled. Are they telling others, you know, you're, this person's crippled? What makes you begin to believe that you must still be afraid of God's judgment? Even as believers, we can still experience shame, right? Perhaps someone's ended a relationship with you or had some tough words with you on the way out or maybe a boss or a coworker uh, seems only able to point out the flaws in your work. Maybe as a, kids, maybe you um, are experiencing sh the shame of not being accepted into a certain group of friends or an athletic team or a student group. Perhaps you find yourself in sin that you thought would never surface again and shame seeks to have you. So God, this is what I want us to hear, like David says, do not fear. And he has given us everything in Christ, everything. So to over overcome our shame, we want to practice enjoying God's provision and his presence. His provision, grace, mercy, salvation, in Jesus, a place to live, food to eat. These are gifts from our great God. Your Bethesda family is a part of his provision for you. Or how about his presence? We have the living, active word of God. It's alive. It changes us. It transforms us. It renews our mind. It, it, it's alive. So we feast on God's word. We practice his presence. We seek him in prayer. We practice his presence. We spend time with his people to practice his presence. The, the scriptures say, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Meet with each other regularly, right? That's how we, we can practice his presence. Telling others of him, like Tyler, telling a Chinese student or Eli or a freshman at UW-Madison. Tell others about the, the living God is practicing his presence. When you're tempted, back to shame, confess that to God, ask for his help, to remember the truth and live like you're an honorable member of the king's family. Second, and, and lastly, because God has adopted us into his family, we need to live, uh, not live a life of pride, but of humble gratitude. We need to be aware that we can run past shame into pride. Have we experienced pride recently? Are, are you proud that you go to Bethesda? This is a temptation at my church in Minneapolis. A lot, lot of us like our church. We're very delighted that God has our church there, but we can be tempted to think it's the best church on the planet. Is that you? Are you proud that you know Jesus and, and those silly lost people don't? Hopefully not. Are you tempted to take pride in a position at church or work or in the community? Listen, being a part of this loving, Christ-centered community and knowing the King of Kings are incredible things, but we need to be careful to remember what we truly deserve, and be thankful for the grace that God has shown us in the gifts and experiences he has given us. Because God has adopted us into his family, we can live like sons and daughters of the king. In Jesus Christ, shame is no longer our lot. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Love this verse in Hebrews. Who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
In Jesus Christ, pride has no place. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, Paul says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. One thing I need to consider is that someday, all three of my sons may decide a similar course of action as I've taken. Perhaps someday, for, for whatever reason, they'll want to change their last names. I hope not, but they might. I need to, I need to consider that. That is a potential thing that they'll do. We've adopted all of them. I've had to navigate this with my dad, Gibson, and that's not always been easy. Imagine the difficulty of a child you raised changing their last name uh, to that of someone who did not parent them. How would, how would we feel? So I have to live with that possibility, absolutely. But here's something that's certain. Austin, Ray, and Milo will always know, I'll make it absolutely abundantly clear, that they are my sons, that they are loved by me, always their adoptive father, and that they're always going to be a part of our family. Paul says in Ephesians I, I, uh, that God has predestined us for adoption. Look at this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Just as Austin, Ray, and Milo will always know that their father will provide for them, that they'll always be welcome to enjoy our family's presence, we can know that our God, through Jesus Christ, has accepted us in spite of us, that he loves us, provides for us, and invites us to eat at his table. Sons and daughters of the King. hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.